So why would I waste my time on a Sunday morning to go to a place called church when I have, when we have, we have moved on past that. And as long as I'm um, happy in my life and successful and trying to uh, be fulfilled in my life, really that's all that matters. And so as, as long as I'm just kind of uh, plowing along throughout life, then then that's good. And for those who uh, decide to go the religious path, that is, is good for them. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that everybody knows there's a God. Everybody knows. Every person sitting in this church knows that there's a God. There's no debate over that. The atheist has become hardened to that, desensitized, has suppressed the truth to the point of where they no longer feel the need for God or that voice for the the call of God, the need for God has all of a sudden become very small. And there are people who have in the past have tried to earn their way to heaven. Well, if I go to church, I'm a good person, and I go through the steps of uh, A, B, and C in the Bible, I try to obey the golden rule, then surely I'll get to heaven. The truth of the matter is most people are not talking like that anymore. People in my generation and uh, the generation down are very indifferent. It's not complete, but it is widespread. And so no longer are you talking to 20 and 30-year-olds who are saying, you know what, I'm just really trying to be a good person, so someday when I stand before God, he's going to let me into heaven. I almost never hear that kind of conversation. Somebody's just struggling, struggling along to behave and, and do right things before God so that they can get in. We have atheists, but we also have agnostics who are just kind of going along, well, I think that there's a higher power maybe out there somewhere. The great sin of our age today is the sin, listen, it's a sin, See, when people think about sin, they think about adultery, they think about murder, they think about stealing. People say, I don't do all that stuff. I'm not an adulterer. I don't really steal a lot. I don't, you know, kill anybody. But the great sin of our age is the sin of unbelief. It's unbelief. The person that just kind of goes along and just is exactly how we have just described, well, that's fine, I guess there might be something out there, but they remain unchanged, they remain unaffected, there's no passion in their heart. Listen, this is how you know somebody is a Christian, if they love Jesus with all of their heart. That's a Christian. A Christian isn't just somebody who kind of goes along with the tenets of faith. A Christian is somebody who has been uh, moved and changed within their within their very heart. But the truth is, we have this we have this problem in our day and age where so many people are unmoved. That's why the churches are empty. They're unmoved. They wake up and they say, "I don't really need God. I don't really care." He could be out there, and that's fine if he's out there, but we are so advanced, we don't really need this book. Reading the Bible, actually taking this book seriously, reading it and being challenged and changed by its words, that just seems like something so far gone and in the past. 
The only thing that is going to stir hearts like this is a mighty move of God. That's the only thing. Otherwise, we are, we are headed into deeper darkness. Unless God really wakes us up and begins to convict hearts, this is what a revival is about. People going along not really thinking that there is really such a thing as the judgment of God. There's really no true hell. That's, well, maybe that's possible, but not really. The only thing that's going to change this is if God, God's people, get together and begin to pray and say, God, your judgment is already falling. The fact that so many teenagers and so many 20-something-year-olds and so many 30-something-year-olds and so many 40s and 50-year-olds are just so unmoved and so indifferent to your word and to the Bible. God, would you forgive us? God, we don't want to just sit here and go through the motions. God, your judgment, that is an indicator of your judgment. The fact that there are so many who are in unbelief, the sin of unbelief. And sin always brings judgment. And we have a choice. We have a choice of if that judgment is ultimately going to fall on us, and we walk hard-hearted, it's amazing what God can do. God can take the most hardened person, not the, not the person who has been sitting in jail. Oh, yes, he can change the people in jail, and we've been talking about that, and thank the Lord for all that he does for criminals in our system and all that. Thank the Lord that he is present in, in the jails. But he can also take the person who doesn't care and who is just kind of going through life. And this is what must break God's heart the most in our generation, in our day and age, is the apathy and the indifference. And so we have to be awakened to the fact that judgment is real, and that judgment can either fall on us, and we can walk without really realizing right into our death, and all of a sudden be awakened to the fact that all this stuff that we heard in church when the gospel was truly preached, that all of it was actually true and all of it was real. Or God can begin to soften us and we can begin to actually think about these things to the point of where we say, Lord, I don't want the judgment. I realize that for my unbelief, Lord, I've been so indifferent to you. Lord, I've just been kind of going through my life in unbelief, and I've been happy that way and unmoved, and I keep putting you to the side. I put God over here, and my life is fine, and I'm just going forward with my own life. Perhaps there are some who are seated here that are in that position, just putting God to the side. Perhaps it's even believers who have come to a place in their life where they know Christ, but lately in their hearts they've been putting God to the side. And the last time that you can remember of really having a good talk with the Lord, not only about the world, but also of your own sin, has been some time. But judgment does come, and judgment comes for the sin of apathy, for the sin of indifference, and judgment will come for the sin of unbelief. The question is, 
is that judgment going to fall on us? That's the first option. The only other option is that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, that we deserve for our sins, instead of falling on us, which is righteous and just. If you've ever talked to just indifferent kids, just hard-hearted, rebellious kids, it can be off. But it's a real turnoff to God when his people, that he has created in his own image, are sarcastic and rude with God, unbelieving and unmoved, judgment is coming. So the choice is, is it can fall on us, the, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins can fall on us. Or the only other option and the only hope is that the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins falls on Christ. Those are the only two options in this life. The judgment of God can fall on us and it will fall on us for all of eternity, everlasting death. Or that judgment that we deserve for our sins can fall on his only son. And this is what we are talking about when we are talking about substitutionary death. That the death that Christ died was in our place. The judgment that we deserve for our sins instead of us getting it, the only way out of this is not by us being good, as some have tried, although many are not doing any longer, but by Christ coming and taking the judgment of God in our place because he is the only sinless one who has ever lived. And what we see in our passage here in Mark chapter 15, if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, is we see this happening. We see the judgment of God Instead of it falling on sinners that sinners deserve, the horror of God's wrath falls on Christ. This is an awful picture. Jesus has been beaten. He has been mocked to no end. Group after group has been mocking him and making fun of him. This is a horrific scene. It is, as we said, it's a depressing scene. It's a fearsome scene. So the Lord is going through all of this, and it's gruesome. And it's almost as if one has to turn their head away from this as they're listening to all these mockers saying these horrible things, scoffing at the Lord, making fun of the Lord over and over again. And then all of a sudden something happens at noon. The Lord is hanging on the cross. He would hang on the cross for six hours from nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. He would hang there. Most men would hang there a lot longer. But Christ, because of the loss of blood, because of the beatings, because of the sleeplessness, because of everything that he had gone through, would die much more quickly. And all of a sudden, something very interesting happens as he is hanging on the cross, this now three hours in at noon in the sixth hour. And it says this in verse 33 of Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. This is probably 
just limited to the area of Israel, to the, to the area of Palestine. We're not sure exactly uh, how this worked, and perhaps that could be for a discussion at another time. Some people say, well, maybe this was an eclipse, although at this time of year and this time of month, it doesn't seem like that was possible. Some people say, well, perhaps it was another natural occurrence. We're not really sure. It could have been purely supernatural. But we know that it was physical darkness. And this is at noon. So all of a sudden, Christ is hanging on the cross. It's noon. It would be our lunchtime. And darkness, physical darkness, encompasses the land. This is an indicator of the judgment of God. Whenever we talk about darkness in the Bible, light being contrasted with darkness, we're talking about the kingdom of light and all the blessings of God and all the good things that come along with the blessings of God. We're talking about the kingdom of light. But when we talk about the kingdom of darkness, we are talking about the judgments of God, the distance of God. And so here is something supernatural that happens, whether it was natural in the actual world or not, coming from something in our solar system, or whether it was purely supernatural, we know that darkness enveloped the land. Here Christ is on the cross, and all of a sudden, literally 2,000 years ago, darkness falls on the land. People are instantly getting a sense of the deepness of this. This is real. This is actually happening. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. But if you go back in history long enough, you go back to the cross, and you could be standing there witnessing this, and all of a sudden darkness comes. It's eerie. It's creepy. What in the world is going on here as darkness descends and it would last until the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. This was uh, prophesied. We see a text that resembles this. If you go back to Amos chapter 8, if you go back in your Bibles to Amos, the eighth chapter. Amos chapter 8. Verse 9, Amos chapter 8, verse 9 says this. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, that's profound. That's powerful. In the middle of the day, Amos says that the sun is going to go down and the earth is going to be dark in the middle of the day in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning. They were celebrating Passover. In fact, the lambs would be being sacrificed at three in the afternoon, just as Christ was bowing his head and was dying. I will turn your feast, feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread that would follow, into mourning. And all your songs into lamentation, I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Somebody has a child and they die. You want to talk about mourning and weeping and crying? This is 
This is the feeling that was going on with Christ as he was, as he was on the cross. The feeling of losing an only son. Now, I happen to uh, know what this is like because I have a son. And I'll never forget when he was diagnosed with a tumor in his spine, sitting with Crystal and so thankful for the doctors that took care of him. Sitting with Crystal in the waiting room with uh, our hands tightly clasped as we were praying for him. Lord, get him through. And then I remember Dr. Dormans coming out at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia like an angel, coming and sitting down with us. His hands were still shaking like this. He was so amped up from what he was just doing. And he said, I want you to know things went really well. And he was so encouraging and so uh, helpful to us in, in that moment. But that pales, listen, that pales. That is, that is nothing in comparison. That's nothing in comparison to watching the Lord Jesus Christ as he was hanging on the cross and darkness is descending. You have a father and this relationship of a father with an only son we see throughout scripture. We have Abraham and Isaac and we think of the account of Abraham taking Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him. And of course God comes out and says, don't do it. But this time God would go through, the judgment would fall This is a picture of the wrath of God. The judgment of God is falling. The darkness that we associate with the judgment of God instead of falling on sinners is falling on his son. Substitutionary atonement. That's what it's called. When we talk about the wrath of God, there are a couple parts that we could talk about. What does... God's wrath look like? His wrath looks like being handed over to sinners. When we think of the wrath of God, we think of God, not malicious, our God is a God of love, but God's wrath is God saying, okay, you don't want to believe? You refuse? You have a hardened heart? I will turn you over to that. Turning a person over to their sin or turning somebody into the hands of sinners is a picture of the wrath of God, and that's exactly what we see here with Jesus. Even though he was without sin, he was handed over, not because of his own sin, because he was perfect and he was spotless and he was sinless, so he wasn't being handed over into the hands of sinners for his own sin but he was being handed over into the hands of sinners, the the very picture of the wrath of God. He was being handed into the hands of sinners because of our sin. If you go back just to chapter, to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, if you remember this from Mark chapter 14, verse 41, Jesus came the third time and said to them, our you still sleeping and taking your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. Here it is. Into the hands of sinners. 
So instead of Christ being handed over because he had done something wrong, he had done nothing wrong, this is all him doing it on our behalf because of the great love of God. Picture of the wrath of God, Christ being handed over to sinners, a person being handed over to their own sin. Do you know how awful it's going to be on judgment day when person after person stands before the Lord and he says to them, as C.S. Lewis says, instead of us saying, your will be done, God says to us, your will be done, thy will be done. What an awful statement. This is a picture of the wrath of God. If you have a, a, a picture in your head of this vindictive, mean God in the clouds, that's not our God. 1 John chapter 4 says God is a God of love. In fact, it tells us God is love. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But he's also a God of wrath. And make no mistake, the indicator of his judgment is people saying, we don't care. We're good. And if you think this is anything new, in 2016, living in a generation of people saying, ah, duh, we don't care, we've just advanced so far in our lives, we don't have time for God, we don't have time to get serious about God, we don't have time for that. Do not become so puffed up and arrogant to think that we are the first generation that thought that. All you have to do is go back to the days of Noah. When they said, an ark? And for 120 years, he would build this ark, and people were making fun of him. An ark, what are you doing? It's the same thing they're doing today. Peter says that. Scoffers will come. And they say, well, you've been saying the Lord will be coming at any moment, any time. You've been saying that your whole life. And people in our day say, not only have you been saying that your whole life, you've been saying that for 2,000 years. The church has been saying, for 2,000 years the Lord is going to come back. Where is he? Where is his appearance? This is an indicator of the judgment of God. Romans chapter 1, if you flip over there to Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, notice what it says. Therefore God gave them up. That's a picture of, of the wrath of God. God gave them up to their lusts. You want to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with? Okay, you can have it. You think you're going to find freedom in that? quality in that, all the things that our society is talking about, this is, a, this is an indicator of the judgment of God. Verse 24, he gave them up. Look with me at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Now notice verse 18 there. Back in verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed. What, is, what does the wrath of God look like? It looks like God giving people up. God gave them up in verse 24. God gives them up in verse 26. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. They could no longer even think straight. They think in a perverted, unrighteous, unholy way, so God gives them up. So if we're talking about the wrath of God, we are talking about being handed over to sin or handed over into the hands of sinners. Why was Jesus mistreated? Why was he mocked? This is... 
This is what we hear over and over again in the text. Why was Jesus Christ going through all of this? He was going through all of this because the wrath of God, instead of being credited to us, would be credited as a substitutionary atonement to his only son. But it's not only being handed over to sinners, it's being abandoned by God. No hope. No more time. No more time to pray. No more time to say, Lord, help, I need you. God says, I will not answer, I will not hear. So if you have a picture of the wrath of God, if you have a picture of hell in your mind, you have people being given over to their sins, and you have a God who is not present with his blessings, with his protection, with his hearing. Thank the Lord we can call on him and he is near us. We call on him, we say, oh Lord, would you hear us? And we sense his presence being handed over to the wrath of God is being abandoned by God. Lamentations chapter 1, if you go back to Lamentations, if you go into the Old Testament, again, Jeremiah, and then over to Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. Lamentations chapter 1. Verse 12 says this, He's lamenting, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? Same book, chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, Lamentations chapter 5. Just flip over just a few pages. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? This is a picture of God's wrath. Why do you forget us? It's not like somebody being handed over to their sins. It's the abandonment of God. Why do you, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so, so many days? This is a picture of the wrath of God. And then if you go back to our text in Mark chapter 15, so darkness has descended. The sixth hour has come, the ninth hour has come, and all of a sudden in verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. That's in the Aramaic. Perhaps it was Eli, Eli in the Hebrew. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, this is the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, him being handed in to the hands of sinners and him being forsaken by God. Now listen, Christ never stopped being God on the cross. There was no separation in his substance between him and the Father or the Holy Spirit. But somehow mystically there was a separation in relationship. As this fellowship that Christ had had, and we see this over and over again in the Gospels where he would, he would desire to say, I have to go spend time in prayer with my Father. The wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus as such that on the cross he experiences the wrath of God by being abandoned by his own Father. His Father turns his face and somehow in the relationship... There is a separation. 
as God cannot look upon his own son as his own son is paying for the sins of the world. You see, how can we fully understand this? We can't. Martin Luther got to this text and he thought, well, I want to understand this more deeply. And he went away to try to figure out what he was seeing. And he couldn't. He came back and he said, I just accept this, that somehow there is a separation here between the father and the son. This is an experience of what hell is like to be separated from the blessing of the Father. You notice here, he doesn't say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He senses the separation. He knows that there has been a breakage here in the relationship. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 22. If you go back to Psalm 22... Psalm chapter 22 in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. This is, this is a picture of what it means to be substituting himself for the sins of the world. If you go over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5. Let's go back to verse uh, 6 and we'll get to verse 9. Christ here, instead of just dying for those who like him, people in the military can do that. You can go die for your country, and that is a noble and brave thing to do. But to die for your enemies? How hard is that? Somebody is nasty and cruel and mean to treat them with love and to treat them with kindness. This is what is so surprising about the cross and so wonderful about what Jesus is doing. He's dying for those who are arrogant. He is dying for those who mock him. He is dying for those who don't care. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So there are times when somebody would die for someone else. You'd die for your wife. You would die for your children. You would die for your nation. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since here it is, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. So how are we saved from this judgment of God? The judgment of God that should fall on us instead of falling falling on us falls on his son. Now when he said this, he's on the cross and he says, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, There are people there that are listening and they're mishearing this and they're thinking to themselves, maybe he's mispronouncing the word Elijah. Because Eli in Hebrew sounds a bit like Elijah. Verse 35, it says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Perhaps he is calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. So they're saying, well, maybe, maybe Elijah, the old school prophet, I mean, he never really died. There was a tradition that perhaps Elijah would come and would help. So here Christ is dying on the cross. Elijah had gone up in a whirlwind with a chariot of fire. Maybe he's crying out to Elijah. Of course he wasn't. He was calling out to his father. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. He's been given wine with gold before in the form of mockery, and he had refused it. This time he does not refuse it. This was actually to mock him and to prolong his suffering. So here he is, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's hanging on the cross. They're mocking him still. Maybe he's calling for Elijah. Maybe somebody's going to come down and help him off the cross. And then somebody goes and grabs some wine for him and holds it up to him. Let's prolong this show even more. This is getting good. Let's, let's see how long this thing lasts. He put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So let's, let's mock him. Let's see if this thing actually happens. Let's see what goes on with him. Is he going to die or is he going to have his death prolonged? And so Jesus now is ending the near, near the end of his life. He's completely in control. To the very end of his life, he knew exactly what was going on. He was directing things from the cross. He was never out of it. He was never up there trying to figure out what was going on. He had his complete faculties. He knew exactly what was going on to the last moment. And Jesus uttered, verse 37, he uttered a loud cry, complete control of the exact moment of when he was going to die. He was Lord over his own death. And he breathed his last. We know exactly what he said. If you go over to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verse 30. John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, that is, his, his human spirit. Everything that he had been praying for, that awful moment that he was anticipating, if you remember that he had prayed through in the garden of Gethsemane, O oh Lord, remove this cup. He was faithful to the very end. He had completed the task. He had come to save sinners, and that's exactly what he did. He said, it is finished. He said something else, too. If you go over to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Luke 23, verse 46. Verse 45 says the sun's light had failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. So here he is hanging on the cross. And there was this huge curtain that hung in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies where the priest would only enter into once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, from the holy place. So God was saying that there was now a new way of access the old covenant was obsolete. It was over with. 
The sun's light had failed, and he says in verse 46, and Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he says, it is finished. The work of redemption, he had come to seek and to save the lost. That's exactly what had happened. He had fulfilled his mission. He was faithful to the very end. Isn't this what we pray for? Isn't this what we pray for? Lord, help us to be faithful to the end. Lord, help us not to give up. Wouldn't it be horrible to know Christ and then somewhere along the way we begin to give up and we have seen so many people all of a sudden they just kind of fall by the wayside, those who never really knew him. Listen, if you know Christ and you have a new nature, you love him, you won't just love him for one year or two years, but you will be faithful. There are times you say, I don't feel like it. You feel a portion of this. You feel like the darkness is pressing in on your life. Where's God? See, you begin to feel like that. You begin to say, I I thought I've been praying, but I, I don't know where God is right now, and you're feeling forsaken. You might even say this. My, my childhood didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. My young adulthood didn't go the way I thought it was going to go, and on and on. Perhaps it's an illness or something that just comes into your life unexpectedly, and you're saying, God, where are you? This should be a comfort to your soul that everywhere that your foot has taken you, your Lord has already walked there before you. And so all of a sudden, as he is dying, this curtain that had separated the holy place from the holy of holies is now ripped in two. I don't want to go much longer, but I want you to turn. We're going to close with this. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, so this was the blood of the new covenant, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is he saying? The temple's going to be judged. That whole apostate system is going down. No longer are you going to need to drag calves and uh, sheep to the temple to be sacrifice that's not going to be needed anymore all of the stuff that goes along with that whole temple system is gone you don't need to have a priest who is going in between you to God at the temple you go right to God through his son and what is obsolete that's the old covenant is growing old and is ready to vanish away now notice chapter 9 verses 11 through 15 and with this we close But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. This is why the curtain was rent in two thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? 
Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, here it is, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So here's the Lord. He's hanging on the cross. The wrath of God has been justly poured out upon him. He says, it is finished. Into your hands, Father. He recognizes he's still there, even though he'd said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He commits his spirit. He says, Lord, I commit my spirit into your hands. And with that, he breathed his last, and he died. And we'll see next week that the reaction we have here is exactly the reaction we have at the cross. People just watching. that he did it for us. So there's two paths. Either we can go on and receive the judgment of God for our sins, or we can receive the judgment of God that has been placed on Christ in our place so that we receive the forgiveness of our sins and have life everlasting, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Would you stand with me as we close? If I could ask if the um, someone would grab the worship leaders from downstairs. Father, we come into your presence thankful for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that you had complete control, complete command of exactly what you were doing. That you finished uh, the race all the way to the end. Lord, if that was the end of the story and you died and that's the end of it, we wouldn't even be here today. There would be no Bible and there would be no universe. the very heavens, the very universe exists because of Christ. And if Christ did not come, we do not exist. There is no universe. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who is our wrath bearer. Lord, without you absorbing our wrath, where would we go for substitution? Who would take our place? There is no judgment of God has to fall. It either falls on us or it has fallen on your son. So Lord, I pray that as we think about these things this coming week, that we would grow in our gratefulness, that we would never grow tired of hearing, even as those who have been saved for some time, that we would never grow tired. And Lord, I pray that if we are tired of hearing about the cross, that you would forgive our rebellion and our hard-heartedness toward you 
sensitive to what you have done for us. We thank you for the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.